Hey listeners in Thornhill, just before we get started, I want to let you know the CJN is going to be at the Shook in Promenade Mall in Thornhill, which is a special event happening in the uh, former Sears building in the Promenade. Uh, if you visit the CJN booth while you're there, sign up to our newsletter. There's going to be a, a, a sign-up sheet there, and you can enter a chance to win two free tickets to the SpongeBob musical. Which is like a kind of fun thing. I don't think there's a. I don't know of a Jewish connection to the SpongeBob musical, but well, but. the uh, Steven Hillenberg is Jewish. The guy who created it, he was Jewish. Sorry, he died this year. SpongeBob <laughs> one of, is, is is one of the brothers. One is one of the tribe. Okay. Uh, well, if you're going to be in the Shook Promenade Mall, December first, second, swing by the CJN booth. Sign up to our newsletter. You can you can see SpongeBobble for free live. Welcome to the Canadian Jewish Schmooze. I'm Michael Freeman. And I'm Alex Rose. Today on the show, we're going to be chatting with Mark Breslin, Order of Canada, founder of Yuck Yucks Comedy Club. We're going to be talking about what's changed in comedy over the last 40 years. Uh, we're going to be chatting a little bit about Louis C.K. and we're going to be talking about Yuck Yuck's upcoming compilation albums. Next, with the news that Yitz's Deli is closing, a Toronto Jewish staple for decades, we're going to be looking back at some other delis that have closed and why we think it's happening. And finally, we're going to be asking, do Jews really need to worry about Heirut, a quote-unquote unapologetically Zionist group that is representing our people on campuses in Canada? So right now we're joined by Mark Breslin, Order of Canada, founder of Yuck Yucks Comedy Club, internationally legendary comedy club. I should tell listeners, as full disclosure, I have performed at Yuck Yucks in a former life as a failed stand-up comedian uh, about a decade ago. Uh, Mark, thank you so much for coming on the air. You're welcome, but you shouldn't call yourself a failed stand-up comic when you only <laughs> tried it a few times. Everyone fails. Pick the greatest comic you know. Pick the comic you respect the most. And I guarantee when they started off, they bombed, but it doesn't make them a failure. You're not a failure. Oh, You're a quitter. Mark. <laughs> There's the difference. I will, I will say, I think it was tainted by the fact that my first few shows were like huge hits at university campus, and it boosted my ego and inflated it through the roof. And then I, and, and Yuck Yucks, I will say, were uh, two of my best shows at that amateur night because it wasn't a bar, so people weren't drinking, people were right. there. And I find the amateur night's actually pretty friendly. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't think really people go to see them. I used to think people used to go to amateur nights to see people bomb. Yeah. The same way as if you went to a car race, you'd sit on the curves because that's where the crashes happen. And let's face it, that's the macabre excitement. But um, I think things have happened in the comedy business in the last five years. It's become much more professionalized. And I think people are more supportive of even fledgling comics now. Um, so I, I, we want to talk sort of broadly about um, comedy and, and your perspective of it over the years. I think maybe that's a good place to start. You're just talking about how things have changed in the last few years. Since you founded it in, um, I don't know the day, 80... 1976. 76, yeah. earlier than I thought. What have been some of the biggest changes, especially more recently, in the stand-up comedy industry? Well, um, there's more stand-up comics now than ever. 
Um, in fact, it's uh, increasing at a geometric, not an arithmetic rate, which is too bad because the amount of work for people, paying work, that's what really matters in the end, is only increasing at an arithmetic rate. And so you've got this uh, Malthusian curve nightmare um, where there's a big gap between population and resources. Uh, Malthus in the 18th century predicted that would lead to mass starvation. Um, and he was right in the third world. He wasn't right in the first world because he never foresaw birth control which changed everything. Well, we have a similar situation uh, in comedy. When I got into it in the late 70s, the 80s, you could have 10 decent minutes and I would be sending you on the road because there just weren't that many comics. Now, I would say there's maybe a thousand comics just in Toronto alone. Not good ones necessarily, but passable ones, ones that can make people laugh if they don't pay a big cover charge, <laughs> uh, people who can make people laugh if they don't have to do too long a set, if they only have to do five minutes. But all those people are going to expect something to happen with their career, and it's not going to happen. And we're going to have a lot of frustrated and angry people. Hmm. I can attest to that. Do you think that uh, kind of the the demand for time is actually maybe putting downward pressure on the companies or clubs in terms of needing to pay comics if they're, you know, a thousand people who are all competing for a few footholds that there are so many people willing to do it for free? Um, there's a lot of places that don't pay at all, mm -hmm. um, but they're kind of open mic nights and they're not, they don't generally don't charge anything. So right. there's nothing to pay because there's no economic base to begin with. Um, Yuck Yucks and any other real comedy clubs um, still pay a top dollar for... Oh, I'm uh, sure you do, yeah. For, for professional comics mm -hmm. because outside of the Tuesday night, you'll only see professional comics at Yak Yaks. Mm -hmm. So they're making decent money. And when we send them on the road, you know, we have 15 clubs all across the country, um, biggest in the country. And we have um, an agency which puts them in all kinds of smaller bars and places that aren't big enough to have comedy clubs. They're making money. Um, so that's not the problem. The people who got into the game early enough um, are doing well enough. Not great. It's, you know, it's Canada, it's show business. But... Um, the people who are trying to get in now are just finding it virtually impossible to do anything but, you know, uh, go to a, a room and say, um, I'll put a cover charge on the door and I'll call every friend I have and I'll, I'll take the whatever's there and then they do it again seven months later because their friends are only going to show up so many times. That's, those are the people that are going to have a really hard time. Something that I missed in, in, in Toronto, or maybe not missed, but something that I, that I mourn that we don't have is a strong um, Jewish group of stand-up comics in the same way that New York does. I, I, as far as I know, that doesn't exist. I think it, it may have at a certain time. Well, you're absolutely right now, but you weren't, that would not have been the case when I first started. Hmm. When I first started back in the late 70s, here in Toronto, I would say at least 50% of the comics that would work with me were, were Jewish. Was one of them Steve Pulver? One of them was Steve Pulver. G Gabe Pulver, his son, is the host of our other podcast, The oh, Menschwormers, a Jewish sports podcast. That's great. And Steve was always a big sports guy. But there were tons of people, and not just um, comics, but the people who were involved with me in the comedy business end of it. You know, and the people with names like Axler and Waxman and uh, Wagman and Pezum and Feinberg. I mean, it just went on and on and on. I mean, you'd actually be hard-pressed to find a non-Jewish name um, in all the people who helped me get my company going and still do. Uh, but in terms of front of, 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 like, in front of the audience, it went from 50% down to the point where if I try to do a Jewish show, an all-Jewish show one night, which I do from time to time, 
hard to find a minion. <laughs> why? Why? What happened? What happened in the last 30 years? Well, I think a lot of it uh, in the 70s, there was a sort of tale. There was sort of a, a kind of we were running on fumes of the counterculture and the counterculture was very strongly Jewish. Um, so if your child said, I want to be an artist of any kind, it was kind of, yeah, that sounds great. But now um, we have become such so integrated into the fabric of the of the culture that we've kind of we don't need to be artistic anymore because everybody's becoming a hedge fund manager is it possible also that there are still a fair amount of jews but just compared to the total they're a smaller percentage like they're being flooded out by all these other groups that are starting to no, show i up. think i'm sorry to say that even in terms of raw numbers that would be the case i can't i i we i do a show sometimes um, with with uh, these people who do, who are specialized in bringing in a Jewish marketplace, and we find it hard to find Jewish comics. But but, but that's not at the least case. good uh, good ones. You know, right. ones that you would pay money to see. Yeah, I mean, it's not the case in in New York though. Still, right? Well, New York, even black people and Irish people are Jewish. <laughs> <laughs> but, Come on, but, that is the that is the most Jewish city in the in the world, and um, a quarter of the population is Jewish. And even again, there is a Jewish Tom. Is that a good word? You know the word Tom, the Yiddish word Tom. I actually taste, don't. Taste. Yeah. Um, oh, Tom. Yeah. Like yeah. Tom Meme. So there's there's a Jew- Jewish Tom to the city. I actually have a friend who started a few months ago. So he's Jewish, um, and obviously he's not a pro yet. But what was funny was uh, he went up one night, and a big part of his bit is being Jewish. And then another guy came up after. And he was also Jewish. And a lot of his stuff was also about being a Jewish comic. And he's like, you can always tell when there's a Jewish comic because they'll be sure to tell you. <laughs> well, you want to start from who you are, um, whether you're Jewish or um, you have a disability or whether you're blind or whether you're a person of color. You kind of have to um, establish the elephant in the room. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be the elephant in the room. You have to establish that. It also gives you a point of view because there's a little bit of stereotyping that goes on, but everybody has an idea of what a black comic should be and everybody has a bit of an idea of what a Jewish comic should be. So if you're a Jewish comic, you want to kind of exploit that expectation, play off it, um, ironize it, play to the expectation. There's all kinds of things you can do with it. I think, I think it may also be the case that it's it's – well, going off what you said, it's not – it doesn't have the cultural – I don't know, whatever it is, cachet or outsiderness to be Jewish that it once did. And so if anything, if I see a, a Jew going up and doing Seinfeldian observational Jewish bit, it, it, it feels a little dated or it can or, or, or you have the threat of that. Look, Mortzal had a, a line that I always liked. He said, uh, in the 70s, you had to be a uh, – no, how did it go? In the 60s, you had to be a Jew to get a girl. In the 70s, you had to be a black to get a girl. In the 80s, you had to be a girl to get a girl. Um, so there was a certain time, and I went through it, and I was very lucky to have gone through it, where it was really, can I say the word, sexy to be Jewish. And you would walk along the beach in 1967, and all you would see were yellow uh, book jacket covers of Portnoy's Complaint being read by Jew and non-Jew alike. And then there was Bob Dylan, and then there was Dustin Hoffman, and there was... Uh, Leonard Cohen, and I could and, and I could go on and on about all these sort of sexy Jewish people. The whole real peak baby boomer era from like the late '60s to the early that, '80s. That's right, and that is all seem that all seems to be gone now. Yeah, times have changed. Um, uh, I do want to talk about Not some necessarily albums. Necessarily for the better. No. I do want to talk about some albums that you have coming out. Before that, on the note of times changing, not for the better, uh, we do have, we we addressed this before we went on air. We're going to talk just a sentence or two about <laughs> Louis C.K. 
Okay. Uh, because it's been in the news, for listeners who are unaware, uh, the CJN went eh, semi-viral. Um, we published a, a, a column by you defending booking Louis C.K. In a, in a string of sold-out shows at Yuck Yucks in downtown Toronto. Rolling Stone, before all the mess happened, declared him the fourth funniest comic on the planet. Oh, yeah. I mean, like of all time? No, uh, living. Oh, yeah. Yeah, living. I would, I absolutely would agree with that assessment. I mean, I I even heard a bootlegged, um, somebody bootlegged it and uploaded it to YouTube the audio of a show he did in New York or something. I mean, it's funny. Like, it was funny. I would have liked to have seen the Yuck Yuck show, to be honest with you, if I could have done You and another, I don't know, I could have sold 20,000 tickets to that. No doubt. Um, so that you published that piece, it, it was an interesting and well thought out piece. And then, um, well, remember what it was. The piece was not me defending Louis C.K. The piece was me defending the booking of Louis C.K. And yeah. there's a world of difference between the two things. Absolutely. And I'm not the only person who's been booking. I mean, he was, he did Winnipeg, uh, comedy club. And I don't have a comedy club in Winnipeg. He did the comedy club in Winnipeg the week afterwards. I'm not the I'm not the only one here. No, absolutely. And and to be clear, we're not talking about <clears throat> the the specific accusations against him or anything like that because it's who who are we to talk about? It? It's it's well, out, in out the of absence hands. of a court case, it means that anything like this becomes a court of public opinion. Okay. Now, in a court case, you have a public defender, a lawyer. Who do you have in the court of public opinion? Twitter. That's right, which is highly unscientific. I um I know we don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole. Yeah. Nope. So maybe I'll just shift the conversation. It's not my business what anybody chooses to purchase, mostly because, you know, whatever you think of Louis C.K., there are people that I follow that I know other people don't approve of, but they bring me joy. I just do want to say whenever stuff like this comes up that I think we focus too much on the relationship between the accused and the public. I think when you frame it in terms of deserve or not, and punishment fits the crime. Um, I think the truth is, like people wanted to see him, they're willing to pay money to see him. That's up to them. And and you you hosted him. There was proof that like clearly people didn't agree with the quote unquote punishment. You know, a large portion of people. So that's that's up to people to decide. I just want to say when we have these conversations, I think it's really important to be sensitive to the people who were allegedly done something to, because whatever we decide to do, we need to think about you know, the, uh, the people who are affected by these actions and how these things can continue to affect them. We, we, we should clarify, because oh, yeah. I didn't even finish right. the introduction, but, but after we published uh, Mark's piece, uh, one of the women wrote, it was actually just a letter to the editor that we published, and we put, published it online, just giving her, her side of things. Mm-hmm. Um, Alex, right, so p- part of what she said is that some fans of Louis C.K. have been sending her death threats uh, because, and you know, ever since the article came out, she hadn't said anything until our CJN article. And I just think we need to think about, you know, it's not that anyone should be punished in this case, but if we're going to be talking about, uh, you know, the consequences, I also don't think we want the people who make the accusations to be feeling the wrath of the court of public opinion either. So I just think that's important for me to say. I have hated public opinion since I was three. I never seemed to be on the on the side of the uh, simplicity of public opinion. Nobody wanted me to open up yuck yucks. I could show you all kinds of uh, press I got uh, at the time saying, "Who does this guy think he is?" Um, nobody wants to hear this kind of comedy. This is this stuff is obscene. This stuff is uh, unpatriotic. 
Unpatriotic. Isn't that a great word for Canada? When do you ever hear about anything being unpatriotic in Canada? <laughs> comedy like, is unpatriotic? Like, no, my kind of comedy, oh. which was <laughs> rude, uh, sexist, uh, racially inflected, mean, uh, cynical, all those kinds of groovy things. Things that we take for granted now in, in comedy, but, you know, it wasn't... Re- shifted toward the mainstream It wasn't comedy. Red Skelton. That's for sure. And, you know, when I first opened up, all these people would show up. Comedy club. Wow, comedy. We love comedy. But not all comedy is equal. Comedy is all different kinds of things. And I was focusing on a a very modern, um, unsentimentalized comedy. Mm -hmm. And people were walking out of my club. A third of them would walk out. Every show. And usually on me. Um, which I took great pride in. <laughs> I loved the fact that people hated what I did because it meant it was relevant. So, well, uh, But if I can continue the story, don't worry, there's a Jewish angle to it. So when they would walk out, um, and they wouldn't just walk out quietly, they would walk out in a huff. They wanted everybody to see that they were walking out. And I would scream at them um, from the stage, uh, get out, get out, who wants you anyway? Go back to your stupid lives in Oakville. You know, you eat your you eat your uh, bread and butter sandwiches with watercress. I don't care, but I want you to remember one thing, just one thing. And we wouldn't let them out until I did this. I would take out my wallet, and I would take a stack of bills out of my wallet, and I would wave it at them. <laughs> and I would go, just remember, the Jew has your money! Oh, <laughs> the Jew has your money! And then I would have everybody who was still in the club chant with me, the Jew has your money, the Jew has your money. And then they would leave virtually in <laughs> tears. And then, uh, maybe a week later, a letter would arrive. Remember, this is before the internet. And it would say to the owner, uh, Yuck Yucks, and I would open it up. And it would be a story about how they were at the club. And this uh, MC, this crazy MC, uh, was obscene and uh, was insulted uh, Christianity and their Christian values. And what are you going to do about it? This happened a lot. <laughs> Enough so that I had a rubber stamp made. And the rubber stamp in, it was big. It was like like four by four. And the rubber stamp may, said in block letters, eat shit and die. Oh. And then in nice like wedding script, the Yuck Yucks management. And then I would stamp the letter and I would send it back to them because these idiots actually included a return address. I wish I still had that stamp. It should go in the Canadian version of the Smithsonian. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> that's that's wonderful. But what, what, what made you want to uh, like... What made you want to do that? Like, yell, the Jew has your money. Like, why lean into it? Well, I guess the short answer is it was fun. Um, I, I was also using my bully pulpit to um, to be as hostile as I could to what I saw as a, um, a hostile Gentile community. And I wanted to rub their faces in it. Did somebody you just, uh, you know, get off and, like, and like upsetting people and, and like, yeah. Turning their like assumptions and expectations yes. against them. Yes, and in fact, I think that that is um, what um, what the job of a comedian or somebody in the comedy business should have should be. Mm-hmm. It should be somebody who um, forces people to recognize their own prejudices, their own own their old ways of thinking. Um, I don't do it as much now as I used to when I was young. But when I was young, it was virtually impossible to have any kind of conversation with me that didn't involve me um, making fun of you in the worst way possible. Do you think, though, that there, in the birth of stand-up comedy and even through to the, to the 80s, I think that was a real urgent and important thing. 
and stand-up comics like Lenny Bruce and George Carlin really paved the way in that being like a, a, an important thing. And Don Rickles. Let's not leave and Don Rickles. Rickles. He's really important in this There's, discussion. Insofar as we're, we're talking a lot about how times have changed, do you, do you think, I, I think the answer is yes, you do, but I'm curious if you can tell me why you think it's still necessary for comedians to behave in that same way when the culture and political climate, what is acceptable, what is deemed obscene has changed. Well, first of all, um, one of the things I always loved about stand-up comedy is it's something you did as an individual, not as a group. Um, and because you do it as an individual, it celebrates the individual. And celebrating the individual is no fun whatsoever and has no meaning whatsoever if the individual th thinks in exactly the same way that the group does. So if you came to an evening of good stand-up comedy, you would hear one individual being eccentric after another with eccentric thoughts, eccentric ideas, um, things that are as my Friend's mother would always say, Mark, there are some things we just don't talk about at the dinner table. And I took that as to mean, okay, these are exactly the <laughs> things I'm going to talk about on stage, and I'm going to promote other comics who will do the same thing. Um, comedy should be the loyal opposition. When I first got into this, um, I had a huge, huge uh, fight. I had huge fights with the Christian right, and I was fighting them all the time. Now it's the feminist left. And another 10 years, who knows who it will be. But it's important to be the loyal, the disloyal opposition. Right. And so so it's, it's irrespective of the political climate, comedy's objective is the same. Yes, ab absolutely. And I'll go back as far as Groucho Marx, who in 1934 in Duck Soup sang a song that went, whatever you got, I'm against it. That is the key-er moment of modern stand-up comedy. Because everything comes from there. Whatever you got, I'm against it. You know, I was always good friends with Mort Saul. I'm glad to say one of the most incredible human beings I've ever met. And I asked him, I said, you know, you were really instrumental in um, getting JFK elected um, because you wrote all his material, all his funny material to do. Then he, he won. And then um, you started making fun of him. How, how could you do that? How could you reconcile it? And he said, that's my job. <laughs> Well, you know, you say, whatever you got, I'm against it. But do you think there are a lot of modern comedians who uh, don't necessarily take that stance, but who are, do have things that they stand for and aren't willing to go against? No, I think there's a lot of jugglers out there that people think are funny. People actually think mimes are funny. Can you believe that? Um, so, you know, there's lots of people who do not want to rock the boat in any way, shape, or form. But those are not the uh, people who are on brand with uh, Yuck Yucks, particularly. Right. But I, it's a department store, you know. I'll have every kind of comic up there. But the ones that capture my heart and the ones that keep me in the business after 43 years are the ones that make me reel back and go, what did he just say? Why don't we segue then into into the uh, albums that the Yuck Yucks label has coming out? Is yeah, right? it's with 604 Records in uh, Vancouver. And so what we've done is we've got two albums coming out uh, in the coming week. Uh, one of them is, and there's about 10 comics on each. One of them is from uh, Vancouver. One of them is from Toronto. Nice. So uh, these kind of comics, uh, I assume, uh, I understand one of them is Jewish, at least. Oh, Laura yeah. Lebo, <laughs> nice Jewish girl with an edge. Um, is on the Toronto compilation, and she's very good. She's fairly new, and new in our world means um, under seven years. So, so what is the common denominator between these comics? I, I assume it'll be something similar to what you're saying about them shocking and surprising people. But well, some of them else. will, and some of them won't. We try to provide a sampler, so it's not all one thing or another. There's PG-friendly stuff on the album. There's not PG-friendly stuff on the album. This stuff has kind of started to bleed because of the internet now. Uh, 
people expect all kinds of things. Censorship, because of uh, the internet, has has is just not as important as it once was. It seems, except for people on you know political extremes, where it almost seems like hate speech. But we, you don't get that at yuck yucks. Um, in fact, you don't get that at stand up. You get that on the internet, where people can hide in their basement and you know be so called funny against you know, minority groups. But you don't get that in, in stand-up comedy clubs. People can find it on iTunes, I assume? Yeah, they can find it on way. iTunes. Uh, and, uh, you know, if you go to the, the Yuck Yucks, you can probably buy a hard copy if you like that, um, you know, on CD. They're, they'd make good Chris, Christmas Hanukkahs coming up. Um, I think they'd make good, good gifts. Wonderful. Now, to segue uh, to a very closely adjacent topic, uh, delis have <laughs> long, you know, you associate delis with stand-up comedy. Um, I'm not one, sure why there are no delis that actually um, present stand-up comedy. To I my was at a barbecue that knowledge. hosted a stand-up comedy night about a year ago. Barbecue. Yeah, it was on Gerard East Blackjacks, I think it was called. But that's not my friend was hosting. But they didn't have deli meats, no. presumably. So no, it's, no so I, I, I don't I, think there's an innate association between classic, the act of eating meat and comedy. Classic delis in New York were the places where the comics went after yeah. the show. Maybe it's just juice. But they didn't do do the shows in the delis. Yeah, no, Nonetheless, nonetheless, the images are linked. Um, th- this week, uh, actually, I think in just a few days, is the final day of Yitz's Deli, which is a classic Midtown diner in uh, the city of Toronto. It's been around all. I want to say almost 50 years, but I'm not sure exactly. A long time. A long time. It follows a string of other delis that have closed, both new and old. Um, they've closed around Toronto uh, and and elsewhere. Uh, Dage and Carnegie in New York. Uh, Moishas Pippick in San Francisco. Um, what that title? Benz and Brown Derby in Montreal. This is from... Is the Pippick fresh? David Sachs's article. <laughs> Sorry. It's from yeah. uh, David Sachs's recent piece in the CJN. And a right. bunch of closed in Toronto. Switzer's, Coleman's, Caplancy's. Katz's, and now Yitz's. And let's not forget, uh, going back further, Switzer's and Edelist. This is before your time. Yeah, before. I I have a few thoughts as to why they're closing in in such rapid succession in the last few years. But before we do get into that, Mark, you you have more experience maybe in this world. I'm kind of curious as to what your theory is. Why, Why are they closing now? Well, maybe people don't like nitrates anymore. I mean, it's not the healthiest food. My Uncle Davey um, used to eat deli every single day for dinner. Every single day. And he died of a heart attack. Yeah. Fairly young. (laughs) So maybe there's an object lesson there. Look, I love deli. Um, But I also know that it's supposed to be a bit of a special treat. You're not supposed to eat it all the time. Um, And there's only one deli in Toronto that I'll go to. Which is that? That's Pantsers. Mm-hmm. I think Pantsers is the only one that's got the kick to the um, to the pastrami. The pastrami is to delis what butter chicken is to Indian food. It's the sort of it's the dish that they have to get right, mm-hmm. and by which all other dishes will be will be judged. So. Um, uh, it is an amazing re- restaurant. It's just a bit far for me because I'm a downtown guy. And they don't stay open late. They close early most of the time. Yeah, a lot of the northern it's ones It's not too far from here. No, it's not too far <laughs> from here. No. Check it out. Yeah, that's true. On the way back, maybe I'll pick up a sandwich. But uh, it's it's absolutely delicious. Sometimes my wife, who's not Jewish, um, even knows. She's not even Jewish and she knows it's the best. I used to go there with my parents when they were alive because they lived on Canyon. Um, uh 
like once every two weeks and we would sit there and I would, you know, get the stink eye from the uh, person serving it because that's the kind of place that it is. Yeah. Everybody's got an attitude, uh, but it is the best. Alex, do you have any thoughts on why uh, the, the delis are closing? What are your theories? Um, I mean, part of it is I think the health food is probably a big part of it. I think I'm not sure if this is contributing because, you know, a lot of younger Jewish people aren't as in touch with some Jewish things. I don't know how much of these delis clientele were Jewish, but we all still like delis, don't we? Even like the young Jews who not so much. You're shaking I mean, your if you're not growing up near them and I, and I feel true. like it, it, were, it was born out of a culture when Jews were mostly living in, in tight communities, mostly downtown, especially in Toronto mm-hmm. or, or if they moved north and it was in that type of community. But I feel like it's kind of it, it is part of that tight community. And like you just said, like you would go there with your parents, right? Like it's, it's a thing that's that's in close proximity. But before I would go there with my parents, um, when I was a teenager, um, I grew up in, uh, you know, around Forest Hill, and there were six delis within walking distance, mm-hmm. and you would take a girl to a deli on a date. You would go and hang out with your friends at the deli. Oh, so it was like a pop shop. Yeah. I didn't realize it was like that, like, cool. Yeah, it was considered word. perfectly cool. Coleman's, Edelist, um, uh, there were a bunch of other ones all around Bathurst and Eglinton, and uh, we would hang out there, and we would eat our pastrami sandwiches and be very happy with them yeah. and and you know you try to remember to pick an extra one up to bring back to your parents we actually ran an article in the cj and it was a cover story maybe three or four years ago that that had an interesting theory that i think also has some merit to it which is that jews are gravitating away from north american deli food and uh latching on to the rise of middle eastern food in popularity a, a lot of um Israeli restaurants are now opening up, or Middle Eastern cuisine, right? Falafel is very cool Mm -hmm. now. That's true. In a way way that it absolutely was not in the 1960s. And the success of Anthony Rose's restaurants, you know, is is an example of that. I personally don't really care for... His deli's closing down, too. Yeah, Rosenson's gone. Well, he always seems to change the format of everything every couple of years to keep it exciting. Mm -hmm. But um, I I don't know. I... I, uh, I like classic delis. I'm not really that much into Israeli food. When I went to Israel, I had a hard time. You're an old school Jew. I'm an old school Jew. Yes, I'm an old school Jew. Well put. I mean, I've I've certainly ascribed to both worlds. I like a little bit of both. Um, But I I certainly understand it's it's with the rise of vegan and vegetarianism, with the rise of just social consciousness in general, and there being more information, and we know more about what's in the food that we're eating. That coincides with this rise of also like an interest in ethnic foods. And, you know, things like tahini are like just very like popular and chic these days, right? Yeah. The fact that you can go and get... Well, I was very disappointed that Zinka Plansky couldn't sell the idea of a deli to millennials. I was and shocked I thought that he, Yeah, I was really shocked. Well, um, there were uh, some other circumstances too. I know, I just remember there was a really, like he got kicked out by his landlord. Do you remember that? Yes. Yeah. I don't, yes. I don't know what would have happened. Maybe, I, I know he was struggling anyway. Because I have a lot of friends who loved it who are not Jewish. Because it was, honestly, because it was expensive and it wasn't that good. Yeah. Can I, we just be honest here? Kaplansky's never the, made the, the best The smoked meat was not good. The other, the non-deli stuff was very good. That may be so, <laughs> but he sorry, marked it but as I a have deli. to jump in here and yeah. say that smoked meat is not pastrami. And I am a pastrami loyalist. A pastrami truther? Yes, I'm a pastrami <laughs> truther through and through. I, even when I go to Montreal and I go to Schwartz's, it's okay. But I still want to be in New York for a real pastrami sandwich. Okay, that's fair. Regardless, uh, <laughs> I don't think Kaplansky's. I mean, it closed for a number of reasons. But so it, it, it was unfortunate that, that he wasn't able to make yeah. it work. I was at least happy I thought that he would. existed. I thought it was going to work. I really did.
Um, and Yitz's, of course, the demise was brought upon very likely, uh, although not conclusively, by the never-ending construction of an LRT that has been happening outside for the last few years. For people who don't live in Toronto or don't go down Eglinton, um, the whole street's been torn up for years. And Yitz's, uh, there's a string of like four entr- empty storefronts next to it. And then Yitz's in a little corner covered by all these like cages and stuff and there's a sign in front that says open during construction yeah it's pretty daunting to go in there because of that construction yeah and yet you know the city would never reimburse uh, any of these businesses for um the business interruption that they've had the same thing happened on saint Clair. i had friends who had uh, diners on saint Clair. they all closed but what i mean do you really think from from a whatever common taxpayer perspective in the city of toronto like do you really think there's no question that the Eglinton Crosstown needs to exist. Do you really want it to cost even more because now the city, like taxes, have to prop up businesses? Yep. It's fair. It's yeah, it's 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 an no issue, but I wouldn't describe it as a burning issue. Although sometimes if you went to Yetzis, it was a burning issue, I'd say. <laughs> <laughs> Our final subject today. Do Jews really need to worry about this? We're going to be talking about a recent protest at York University where we saw a violent clash between uh, pro-Israel and pro-Palestinian groups. Our very own Alex Rose was there reporting on it. Your reporting uh, was lauded by people uh, at York. It was because someone from the JDL wrote on my time on Facebook calling me a capo. <laughs> so a capo. Wow. capo. Okay. Maybe that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I know what that is. So the specific question that we're asking is, do Jews need to worry about Herut, which is the ardently pro-Israel group that brought, um, that invited all this controversy in the first place? Um, is, is, this, is this a good or bad look for us? Are they really helping or hurting? Alex, uh, you were there. I'm curious to hear your thoughts about it. Yeah, I was there. And First of all, I just want to say the reason why we're not saying do Jews need to worry about students against Israeli apartheid, I think, should be self-evident. I think everyone listening to this podcast probably knows why that wouldn't be interesting to discuss. (laughs) What I found very curious about the event was that Hillel opted to not co-sponsor it. And actually, apparently, according to uh, Lauren Isaacs, who's um, the head of Herut Toronto, wanted them to cancel the event. Um, so I just thought it was really interesting that clearly these different Zionist organizations on campus have these different approaches to, I guess, Israel advocacy. And um, I spoke to different heads of some different Zionist organizations in Canada yesterday because I think this might turn into a story. And so what happened was there was an event where a group called Reservists on Duty, which is like IDF reservists, are going to be talking at York University. And there was a planned pro-Palestinian protest. And then there ended up being a pro-Israel counter-protest. There, there always is. Yeah. And and it started becoming violent between some of the protesters. I, I saw some of it. I was also trying to get interviews with different people at various points. So I don't know everything that happened. I've seen different things reporting, reported. Both sides are trying to say that, you know, the other one was responsible for all the violence. I'll just say I don't know. But if there is violence, then I think it, both sides should try to take responsibility for their part in it. That's all I'm going to say about that. You're not going to comment on who threw the first punch. I, I can't. I can't say because, you know, people... Say, I'll say this. The, the violence was not that I saw was not aimed at people trying to go to the event because that's what the story sounds like coming out of it. But, you know, people were able to get into the event. There was York security, there was police, and there was JDL, Jewish Defense League, who actually tried to stop me from getting into the event. They're the only ones who, who tried to stop me in any way. 
JDL are, are uh, and I feel comfortable saying this because I don't report on them. They're a bunch of thugs. I they're just a bunch of meaty guys who like pushing people around. I wouldn't. I <laughs> you don't have to respond to that because you actually are a reporter. You're supposed to be objective. I'm not a news reporter. I'm not supposed to be. I think they're a bunch of thugs. But it, I, I mean, the thing that was in the news was that you know it made it seem like this was a rabid anti-Semitic mob that was assaulting Jewish students. But like. All the biggest people were on all our side. That pastrami and brisket, I think, adds up. They were they were like some beefy boy chicks to to steal a phrase from the mench warmers. They were all the Jews there. Like, you know, I saw some like big burly middle aged men like like losing their minds at the at the pro Palestinian protest. And it's not like, you know, they want to say it was peaceful. Antifada to them might mean uprising. That's the charitable interpretation to Jews and Israelis. It 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 means you know this is a movement that actively violently targets and kills and has led to the deaths of hundreds of our people so it's not like you know they that just that that's still at the very least even if they hadn't been planning on on being physically violent that's intimidating and and scary and and you know harmful for jewish students to hear so there was high tensions there were a bunch of non-student people who came to join these protests on both sides of it as far as i can tell and that's where the you know people started clashing I, I was just going to invite uh, Mark if you have any thoughts on this at all, if you want to jump in. I or... wasn't there. I did go to York, and even in the 70s, I felt that there was a kind of uh, extra sympathy towards Palestinians, even as far back as that. It was never violent at that time. There was a lot of shouting going on. Um, millions and millions of words have been spewed out on this subject. And, you know, for me to add even more words isn't going to take this to any, any no, place. We're, but uh, let me a- answer your, your <laughs> question of please, your, over, your overreaching uh, issue, which is should Jews be concerned about this or worried about this? What's your... Worried, worried? is the language. Yeah. Jews should always be worried. Yeah, that's what, what some is a say. Jew without a worry? <laughs> like, what kind of Jew is that? No, I think what we bring to the world, our tikkun olam, is our worry. So you know be what? worried. Be be always be vigilant about everything. I yeah, including I don't agree. your own motives. <laughs> the thing is, I don't, and that's why I like this uh, this this segment. And I don't agree with that is because I think because there is so much anxiety and outrage and things to worry about. Like I think we just got to pick our battles a little more. You know, we can't worry equally about everything. Did see, they, see, they, new uh, school did, Jew versus old school Jew. Did they or did they <laughs> not <laughs> scream? Put them back in the ovens. Actually, I, I'm not sure. That's what I heard. Yeah, it's what's been going around. And if I, I heard say. that, I feel that the debate has already been lost. Well, that's that's not the part where we're saying we should be worried about because obviously right. that's bad. Right. Yeah. We're, that's not what we're debating. We're asking. So the reason is, you know, a lot of these other Zionist groups I spoke to in various words, various ways of saying it, but they talked about strategy when you're doing Israel advocacy and how creating scenes like this and, uh, you know, the counter protest, one one person I spoke to was like, it might feel really good, but we have to think about how it's going to be received by this. He said the 70 percent who don't really have an opinion about Israel. I mean, I I spoke to someone really that many people don't have an opinion about on Israel? campus, like a, a strong opinion. It was it was a, I can believe that. Huh? Yeah. I mean, they got other stuff going on. He, he said, you know, I talked to someone there who was planning to be part of the pro-Palestinian protest, but she thought that it just meant like asking challenging questions to the reservists on duty, which is what they were there for. And then when she heard the pro-Palestinian protest, she thought that's that just makes them seem like angry and vindictive. But then when she saw that there was a Jewish counter-protest, she's like, it's just two people fighting, people who don't have a dog in the fight 
will just like see two people angry and not listening and it's not going to serve any right purposes. so this is largely about optics this is largely about who you know what who do we want fighting these battles so so and how the, do we want to fight them so the question we're asking is, is do jews need to worry about herut which is the the group which is more right this is not like hillel on campus like this is a very unapologetically zionist is how lauren described it they were in the news famously earlier this year because one of the group members unfurled the israeli flag in front of the uh, dome of the rock yeah on the temple yeah that was that was lauren and that went worldwide viral pissing off people everywhere um so that's the kind of group this is This is a very like in your face uh f you i'm jewish kind of group um, who I don't know by the sounds of your early stand-up career, Mark. Maybe maybe you're on board with them. I don't know. Um. <laughs> no, because mine was more cultural <coughs> rather than political. I, I I'm not really no, terribly that, political. That's fair. Um, but but so the question is, are you know, do Jews need to worry about our, the fact that the people who are representing us and fighting for us on campus are these extremists? Do Jews need to worry about that? I'm a little worried about that. I don't necessarily want them fighting my battles. Alex, do you want to wager an opinion on that? I'll just say this. From a strategic standpoint, you know, of all these... So Herut Canada is is, uh, pretty new here. And I'll just say if all these groups that have been here for a long time uh, have their idea of strategy that are based on best practices and research and, and they think about the consequences of their results and what strength from them will mean for the Jewish community on campus and they think that, you know... There are times and places to be in your face Zionist and times not to. And they think this might not have been the best place. I'll just defer to their judgment because <laughs> I still have to report about this more. I don't. Yeah. So, I, yeah. So, so regardless of whether or not we have to worry about it, you will be there to re- to report on it. Yeah. So it's good for the CJN. <laughs> um, I will say I do think uh, Jews should worry about about this one. I'm I'm like I said, I. I'm 30 years old, right? I was on campus just just within the last decade. I can remember what life was like. I I would not feel comfortable having these Jews, um, not use my culture. It's their culture too, but you but but leverage our culture in if in this overtly political way that I don't 100% agree with. I am pro-Israel, but not to not in the way that they're representing it and not not using their values especially if they're aligning with the JDL who as I've said before and will repeat are literally a bunch of thugs. Um, it's just not, it, I, I, I don't, I think Jews should, I think Jews generally do in the mainstream, um, remove themselves from those who are uh, more on the extreme side. And I think that's the correct thing to do, um, is to not put too much onus on them or, or. Yeah. I mean, Herut is playing this, like from their point of view, you know, they lead the charge and all these other Jewish groups fall in line because they don't want to look weak. But I think personally, they are being weak by not uh, saying that, like, you know, this is what happened. And, like, we don't want Jewish groups showing up and inciting violence because that looks bad on us, too. But none of them have said anything to that effect. They, they talk around it. If you know what happened, you can see it in the statements. But until they come out and say it, you know, Herod and JDL are going to be setting the agenda. And, you know, that's what they do. But yeah. it's, it's up to other Jewish groups, like, to differentiate themselves where they feel differently. What do you think, Mark? Do you think do, do you have an opinion on whether Jews need to worry about these groups? I don't know enough about this to really make an intelligent yeah. decision on that's what right. to say. I just know when things turn violent, it's no good for anybody. Yeah, that's... That's why I like comedy, because comedy <laughs> generally tries to diffuse tension, tries to burn it out, tries mm. to burn it through. Um, it doesn't It doesn't inspire violence. There's never been violence at any Yuck Yuck show in 43 years, no matter what has been said. Well, because the people who are upset just leave. 
because the people who are upset just leave because it's not meant to inspire action. It's only meant to inspire laughter, even if it's taboo laughter. Right. It's catharsis. Yeah, it's catharsis. Well, I wish that the uh, folks at JDL and Harut would just become stand-up comics instead. That has been your episode of the Canadian Jewish Schmooze for today. My name is Michael Freeman. I'm Alex Rose. And I edited and produced this episode. Thanks so much to Mark Breslin for joining us today. Uh, Mark, where where can people find... What do you want to plug? Just go to www.yuckyucks.com and you'll find everything about everything we're doing all across the country. And I approve this message. Uh, our intro music was by Vanya Zhuk. Our outro music is by Lache Swing. David Collin is our supervising dishwasher. And I encourage you all to find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, wherever you get anything. Find us on Facebook. Uh, The CGN Podcast Network is where you will find us. Thanks so much for listening, and we will see you next time.